So today we're, we're going to be looking, or I'm going to base this around chapter 19 of the book of Acts. And we're going to be looking at Paul and some of the experience in Ephesus in chapter 19 of the book of Acts. Now, the first thing a, a decent preacher does, and just for the record, I'm, I am a decent preacher. Um, <laughs> but the first thing a decent preacher does when looking at a text or a scripture they're about to preach on is, is to consider what God's intent was for that text to be written. One of the worst ways to approach the Bible is to have something that you want to say, like an agenda, and then take some scripture so that you can promote your agenda. That's not good because what we do then, we take the word of God and we use it for, it's bad practice. It's bad practice, not a good way to do it. The goal is and always should be, we should be saying to ourselves, what is God saying to the original hearers of the words in this text? And then we should be saying, what is God saying to us in this moment and why does it matter? And it's clear that throughout the book of Acts that God wanted experiences of the early Christians to be recorded for all posterity. It's clear that the experience of the early Christians, the early church are intended to shape our understanding of the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And therefore, what we have in the book of Acts is, is a limited record of the life of the early church. Now, the book of Acts was written by Luke, who also wrote the Gospel of Luke. That's not a big stretch of understanding. But, and Luke expressed in, in his Gospel, in the Gospel of Luke, that his primary interest and focus was to convey an accurate history of the life of Jesus. And then that principle then extends into the book of Acts, that he wants the book of Acts to convey an accurate history of the early church and of the works of the apostles. So what this means is that not every single thing that the early church did was recorded in the, in the Bible or in the book of Acts. Now interestingly, at the end of the Gospel of John, John points out that in his Gospel, he didn't even come close to including all the things that he had witnessed Jesus say and do through, throughout his lifetime. So what we can understand from that, that whole prelude there, is to point out the fact that, the, that what we read of the history of the early church in the book of Acts is very, very important because these are the things that God has chosen to reveal to us through his word. In order to qualify for inclusion in the book of Acts, the history and the stories had to have a relevance that not just for the moment that they were written, but that would reach into the future so that today we can go into the book of Acts, read about the histories, see what God was doing in those times and know that what is being taught and what we're reading about in the book of Acts is for us today. We go back and we pull it forward. We agree with that, right? That all that God has done, he can do it again, right? Yeah? Good. That means we're going to go on well today. And since we understand that God, through his Holy Spirit, authored the text of the Bible through, through humans, we can appreciate that it, what has been written is intended by God for us to hear. Yeah? So the word of God is critical for us knowing what he has called us into today and what he can do and then understand his character and in our context today to understand who the Holy Spirit is and why 
this phrase that we use, come Holy Spirit, is so, so important. Okay, so we're going to read Acts 19, just the first six verses. Um, so let me just read that. So it says this, while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through the interior regions until he reached Ephesus on the coast, where he found several believers. This is Paul speaking. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, he asked them. No, they replied. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what baptism did you experience, he asked. And they replied, the baptism of John. Paul said, John's baptism called for repentance from sin. But John himself told the people to believe in the one who would come later, meaning Jesus. And as soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. When you go into Acts chapter 19, unsurprisingly, it picks up from chapter 18. Thanks, Lorraine. That was, if, you can, if you can laugh at all my funny asides, that would be amazing. But it takes chapter, so chapter 19 goes into chapter 18 and builds on it. And so, just that, to mention that, so that the, near the end of chapter 18, a new character comes into the story, and his name is Apollos. He was from a city called Alexandria. And Apollos came to Ephesus where Paul was staying and, and where Paul was preaching. And Luke says at the end of chapter 18 that Apollos was an educated man. Um, he was learned and he had a deep knowledge of the scriptures. He had been discipled most likely back in Alexandria and he spoke well and accurately with great energy and passion about Jesus. But he had missed something. He'd missed something in his early discipleship. He knew about John the Baptist, who had a ministry of baptizing Gentile converts to Judaism. And he also knew that John had baptized Jesus and that this had been the start of Jesus' public ministry. So Paulus started to speak boldly about Jesus in the synagogue in Ephesus. While he was there, a couple who were very important in the early church called Priscilla and Aquila they heard them speak and invited them to their home and explained the gospel even more completely. What they did was they, they taught them about the Holy Spirit. And they equipped, this equipped Apollos to be an even greater influence on the early church. And Apollos was also a good debater. So like Paul, he would go into um, places where there was philosophers or public debate and he would have those conversations and debates with people over the scriptures. And he was able to prove um, from Hebrew scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And he was doing this, um, this amongst very kind of educated and people and philosophers and the like. So our passage today picks up with Paul entering, now entering the story of Apollos in, in chapter 19. And chapter 19 of Acts, Mostly it's talking about Paul's missionary work in Ephesus. He stayed in Ephesus longer than anywhere else, almost three years. And his letter to the Ephesians, um, which is later on in, in the New Testament, is often described as Paul's pastoral letter because in it he summarizes a lot of the teaching that he, he gave to the Ephesians when he'd been among them. Ephesus itself was a major port and market city of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and the book of Revelation describes Ephesus as the treasure house of Asia. This is no small city. This is a 
place of influence. And it's interesting that, that God chose to bring Apollos and Paul together in such a high-profile um, space. And in Ephesus, Paul had met some people who had received the baptism of John the Baptist, but they were not aware of the existence of the Holy Spirit, at least in the Christian term or the Christ term of who the Holy Spirit is. And to explain what I mean by that, we have to look at the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism in the name of Jesus. When we read the accounts of John the Baptist preaching, we see a radical difference between that and the preaching of Jesus. If we read in Matthew chapter 3, starting at verse 7, it says this, When John the Baptist saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we are safe for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. Pretty heavy stuff, right? Like John the Baptist was your original fire and brimstone preacher. When we read that, doesn't that sound different from the way that Jesus taught? Preach, John's preaching was a warning. Jesus' preaching was the good news that came after that warning. John's preaching was a step on the way because John had no illusions. He knew that he, point, he only pointed to the one still to come. He pointed to Jesus. He goes on to say in Matthew chapter 3, it continues, John's still talking, I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave and carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gather the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. I'm not diminishing John the Baptist preaching here, by the way. You need to hear this. Because John the Baptist preaching was necessary. But it was necessary because there's kind of like two stages in our walk with God. First, through the Holy Spirit, the lights go on for us and we awaken to our need of God. This is what happens when someone gives their life to Jesus. They're awakened to their need of God and it's the Holy Spirit that does that. And for most people, that would be like an unknowing move of the Holy Spirit on their life. They feel compelled or drawn to God. We've had people saved in our church. I remember one girl getting saved after a baptism service and I, and I gave a call out for people to give their life to Jesus. And, and she, I think she put her hand up. I can't remember. I can't remember what I was doing that morning, but she put her hand up for sure. And I went and spoke to her at the end. And I said, um, what, what, is, what is it you want? Like, why, why did you put your hand up? Do you know what you've done? And she said, I don't know what I've done. I just know I need this. Like, that's the Holy Spirit. Like, that's, when we talk about the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he reveals and he awakens us to our need of God, our need of salvation. 
So the work, through the work of the Holy Spirit, the lights go on for us and we awaken to our need of God. And, and, and part of that awakening of our need of God brings with it a growing awareness of our own inadequacy. We come to understand that we're sinful. And in that discovery, we not only become aware that we do things that are wrong, but we become aware that we are inclined towards selfishness, towards sin, inclined even towards our own self-destruction. The Holy Spirit reveals that to us. And it can take some time for this awareness to fully develop in a person. And that's why we would often talk about, you know, some people are on, well, in fact, we all are, but people are on a journey towards Jesus. And as they're convicted by the Spirit, there's a, there's a revelation that can sometimes just slowly unpack and awareness comes and people discover their need for Jesus. And this all happens, we need the Holy Spirit to intervene at the point of salvation because our fallen nature would have us assert ourselves as the master of our own lives, the master of our own destiny. We like to live as though we call the shots, that we are the ultimate authority in our lives. We are in our own mind, essentially our own God. And guys, we look at our culture today and isn't that, it's all about the individual. It's all about self-identity. It's all about who I am, be myself. And that very, very easily crosses into the fact that we, we can make a God of ourselves. And it takes a lot of humbling, a lot of soul searching. And more than that, it takes a great deal of the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to a place of surrendering our self-sufficiency, of acknowledging our inadequacy and our sinfulness. And often this awareness stage is closely aligned with our attempt to do better. So we, we, we realize that, that we're, we're in need of God and then our reaction to it is like, so what can I do to make it better? But, but what happens is inevitably that fails because we try to do it on our own strength. And it's not a pleasant process because if we're brought to the end of ourselves, nobody wants to be there, right? But it's necessary it's a necessary step towards genuine repentance, repentance being turning away from our old life and turning to a new life in Jesus. And just, just as John's preaching was necessary and John's baptism at that time in history was necessary. You see, it's not just that we humble ourselves from here to here because we're aware of our inadequacy before God. That's just the start. It runs deeper than that. There's that um, hymn in Christ alone. We know that one, yeah? And there's, a, there's a, a, a couple of lines in that hymn that says this, till, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin in him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. And those words are based on Romans 2 verse 5, which says, because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. That's John the Baptist's message. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We see or we come to recognize that our sinfulness makes us deserving of God's judgment. It makes us deserving of condemnation. We come to see ourselves as wretched, as the, as the King James Version would say. And it's interesting, if you look back at uh, the, a lot of the revivals the history of revivals, particularly the Lewis revivals, were people who were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit were falling on their face and declaring their inadequacy and their sinfulness and their brokenness before God in a very powerful way. Like instantly, the Holy Spirit revealed the, 
the sinfulness in their life and their need to repent and turn to God. We rightly begin to see ourselves as deserving of condemnation from the hand of God. But then we learn about God's holiness, his perfection and his beauty and we come to see that God is so very different from us. He's so different, so much more, so utterly glorious and by comparison, we see ourselves for what we are. We're unable to rise in his presence because of the weight of guilt that we feel on us. Unable to defend ourselves because of the weight of sin that's been revealed to us. We're entirely at the mercy of God. At the mercy of God. And that would all be very alarming and not a little depressing if that was all there was. John the Baptist preaching by itself left a huge gap. It exposed a huge chasm between me and God, between you and God, between us and God. But John knew that he wasn't the final word. John knew that there was one who was coming whose sandals he was unworthy to tie. John knew that a better message was coming. And that's why he said when he first saw Jesus, he said to the people who were listening to him, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Imagine hearing that message of sin and condemnation and they say, but guys, here comes Jesus. He's going to deal with us. He's going to deal with us. So these people in Ephesus that Paul met, who knew, that only the, who knew only the baptism of John and not the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they knew the sense of condemnation and also the moral duty to do better. But the grace of Jesus... And the help of the Holy Spirit was unknown to them. And I was thinking like their religion, their faith must have been a thing of struggle. And that they weren't living in a place of peace. And this shows us at least one important thing, one great truth. That without the Holy Spirit, there can be no such thing as complete Christianity. Without the Holy Spirit, the best we can hope for is religion. One of the great philosophers of our age, Bono of U2, he's got a, he's got a, uh, he's got a quote. By the way, I love Bono. Massive U2 fan, love him. But he said this, and, and he said this. He said, I often wonder if religion is the enemy of God. It's almost like religion is what happens when the spirit has left the building. There was a lot of head nodding there. We get that, don't we? We get that there. In terms of our own experience, we understand the notion of the Holy Spirit coming upon us because some of us experienced that. We'll appreciate this having happened. And we'll say it's good that these guys heard about the Holy Spirit and that they were baptized in the name of Jesus. After all, Jesus said in Matthew 28 that, that, that his disciples, which includes us, was to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this, you know, being baptized in the Holy Spirit is something that we, we can sometimes put aside and think it's some kind of mysterious, strange thing that some people get and some people don't. We've not got time to go into all that today, but that's, that's a discussion for later. But I know, like, so I just want to share my experience of being filled or baptized with the, the Holy Spirit. For me, it happened 
I think it was in about 1994, so it's almost 30 years ago. And I'd been brought up in a Christian home. I'd known the, the gospel of Jesus all my life. I, 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 I said a prayer of salvation when I was age six, but I did have an experience when I was 18 where I, I, I think I really gave my life to Jesus in the sense of I had some history that I had to give up and confess. Well, when you're six, you don't really have a lot of sin in your life in that sense. I hadn't, I hadn't robbed anybody by that point. I hadn't robbed anybody since, by the way. Um, <laughs> But I had that experience where I definitely made a, like a serious commitment to God when I was about uh, 18. Um, but back in 94, um, I, I went to, a, I won't give you the big detail, but I went uh, forward uh, to receive the Holy Spirit because I really felt like this is something I hadn't experienced. And someone prayed over me and the result that I had was, was really, really overwhelming. I, I began to feel things physically, I would even say that I had this kind of weird thing. My head went really light. I don't know. I just I had strange kind of physical experiences. And then I also um, spoke in tongues for the first time. And I didn't really know at that time really what that was because that wasn't my church background. So I kind of parked that for a wee bit. I'll tell you about that in a second, but I parked that for a wee bit. But that's what happened to me. So that's my, that's my experience. That was my experience very, very briefly. And, and I'm not saying that that is how it happens for everyone, but that was my experience. And it was an important night for me because after that experience, I've wrote here I had no more doubts at all about God or about the Bible or about Jesus. That's not entirely true because, because doubt is part of faith. It's like, you know, you need doubt to build your faith. But what I mean is I had a confidence and a, um, my, my, my commitment to Jesus was now got, had gone beyond reasoning. I didn't have to work, work it out anymore. I was, I, was, I was definitely there. And now, you know, um, you know, when it was coming to things like speaking in tongues, that was a bit weird for me at the time. And I don't think, I, I, mean, I don't think I even told Lorraine about it at the time. I, I wasn't talking about it. But interestingly for me now, like when I, I speak in tongues, it would be in, um, in fact, to say almost exclusively, I do it in worship or I do it when I'm praying, when I've kind of ran out of things to say in English. And it's like something happens, something takes over and these words, they just speak out in praise and adoration of God. But what I do know is that something happened that night to me that changed me and was, de- was a, a, a defining moment. And I'm sure some of you had similar experiences, maybe others you're not. And I'm not here to kind of, this morning, well, I'm not talking about like promoting a particular theology of the Holy Spirit. That is my experience. But I do believe that God wants to impart his spirit on you more than you know. And that there's a real fear around the Holy Spirit because we think it's a bit weird or it's a bit too spiritual. And we want to remain in a rational space because that'll make us a bit too, I don't know, maybe make us a bit vulnerable or we don't want to look too spiritual. I want to say with myself, I am the most rational person around. I am an evidence-based person person but I have seen God do things that I cannot explain 
I have felt things that God has done in me that I cannot explain. I cannot rationalize it. Sometimes God does things. I've experienced God doing things. I've seen him do things. And it challenges my theology. Oh, that's a big thing to say. But it does. It challenges my theology. It it challenges what my set thinking is. Where I have landed. And then God does something. I mean, for example, that night, speaking in tongues was never a thing I'd even, no, it's not for me. And then it happened. So I've got to then go back on my own sometime and work out what was that. And if that's God, where is it in the Bible? I need to start understanding what that's about. God will do things we don't understand. That doesn't mean it's not from God. In fact, does it not make it more like it is from God? Like we don't understand, how can we? Okay, let me just speed on here. Right, so Paul's with these disciples in Ephesus. And the, the message, going back to the, what we read before, the message version of the Bible puts it like this. Paul talks to Apollos and, and all these other people, and he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you take God into your mind only? Or did you also embrace him with your heart? Did he get inside you? We've never even heard of that. A Holy Spirit, God within us. How were you baptized then, asked Paul, in John's baptism? Well, that explains it, said Paul. John preached a baptism of radical life change so that people would be ready to receive the one coming after him who turned out to be Jesus. If you've been baptized in John's baptism, you're now ready for the real thing, for Jesus. And they were. And as soon as they heard of it, they were baptized in the name of the Master Jesus. Paul put his hands on their heads and the Holy Spirit entered them. From that moment on, they were praising God in tongues and talking about God's actions. I've got a wee explanation about that there, but I don't know if we've got time to go, to, to go through it. But I just wanted to think about how different, even if you are a follower of Jesus, how much different is your life when you are acting under the guidance and the compulsion of the Holy Spirit. It's like Andrew said this morning at the beginning of the service, you know, we, we sometimes look, we, we look for God to deal with the big things in our lives, but actually the Holy Spirit is a details guy. The Holy Spirit deals with the minutiae of our life. Like we, he, he, he permeates every part of our being. You know, when, maybe, maybe that time, we, we, what about times when we're, we're ready to say a bad word about someone? Or we're ready to make a comment about someone's character or about their behavior? Have you ever thought in that moment, before you speak, they say, come Holy Spirit? You won't say what you were going to say if you say, come Holy Spirit. What about if you're about to watch that TV program or that thing online? that you know you shouldn't be looking at. Imagine if every time you turned the TV on or opened up your laptop or picked up your phone and went to social media and you said, come Holy Spirit, would you still watch what you're going to watch? Would you still write what you're going to write? Or would the grace of God and his love for the people you're looking at or going to talk to, 
override your own instinct. You see, the Spirit of God isn't someone or something that we reserve for occasions like this or big events. When we read verses like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what do you think we're talking about there? How does Christ strengthen us? He strengthened us through his Holy Spirit. That verse, if you say that verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, you're actually saying, come Holy Spirit. Yeah? And if we want to come alive in the things that God has called us to, if we really want to see the men and women, the people of Falkirk in central Scotland and beyond be empowered, convicted, saved and serving our Lord Jesus, then we need the Holy Spirit working in us and through us and going ahead of us. And when we pray, come Holy Spirit, he enlightens us, he enlightens us to not just be strong enough to do what God has called us to do, but stops us from doing the things that we really shouldn't be doing. When you're seeking and going after the Holy Spirit, the enemy will be on the prowl. But you know, I think the thing that the Holy Spirit, the, the, the enemy goes after, he doesn't go after your faith he goes after your behavior. And this is why it's the things we do that undermine our faith. It's the things we think. It's the things that, you know, when we have a motive that is um, averse to the teaching of God's word and to what the Father wants us to do, that's when the enemy gets a foothold. You know, we've got that verse that says we should take every thought captive. That's a come Holy Spirit moment. You start to think something negative, bad, destructive about someone. You capture that thought and you say, come Holy Spirit. The enemy, he can't really shake our faith because that's settled. It's settled at the cross. But you can shake our behavior. And it's actually, it's our behavior that undermines our faith. That's why Jesus taught so much about how we should live. Read the Sermon on the Mount. That's not so we can attain righteousness in God's eyes. He, Jesus is saying, because you are righteous in the eyes of the Father, this is how you should live. And when we live conversely to the word of God, then the devil takes a foothold. He doesn't go after our faith. He goes after our behavior because he can't touch what God has done but he can touch what we're doing. Does that make sense? So in those moments, and here's your homework for this week, is that this week, this next seven days, why don't you say that prayer, come Holy Spirit, in every situation, so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus, so we can see what the Father is doing, so we can look at a person who we don't have a favorable opinion of. And maybe the Holy Spirit will reveal what God sees in that person.
that person you dislike and uh, the most in the world, God loves that person as much as he loves you. That's what the Holy Spirit does. That's why grace is required. That's why your behavior is a result of the grace of God and not for us to try and attain to be better. But we do want to live well, don't we? But we only do it under the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Why don't we stand?